This episode does include gruesome details from true events. Listener discretion advised for those under the age of 18. Hello, everybody. How are you all doing? Welcome back to the Crime Vine podcast. I know I say this in every episode, but on the occasion when there is a new listener, if you are new here, I am your host, Felicity Brooke. And basically, this is a podcast on all things true crime. And on the very rare occasion, we dive into consent in whoa <laughs> words. We dive into some conspiracy theories. Now, you guys are sending me some amazing cases. Like, thank you guys so much. I'm doing the best I can to like see all of them and get to all of them and research and find out, you know, like what this is all about. And um, today's episode is actually some a case that was in. Um, that was requested by one of my followers named Sarah. And today's episode, as you can already tell by the title, is going to be on the backpacker killer. This is crazy. I was asked to venture outside of the U.S. and take a travel to some other countries for cases, not actually physically travel, but like travel inside like articles and stuff like that, you know, like transport me like metaphorically to another country. So you guys want to hear, I, I have listeners from all over the entire world, which is really crazy to think about. It's amazing. Um, but not everybody is from the US and like, I'm sure every, almost every true crime, like YouTube channel or podcast, they don't really focus on, well, podcasts typically focus on just one case for an entire season or like the entire life of the podcast. But like, I've noticed it's not very common for, you know, other cases from all over the world to be um, discussed. It's usually common for like, if you're from that country, that's, those are the cases you cover. Like that's your territory type thing. And I kind of want it to be a little different and venture out. So this case, we are going to travel to Australia and learn all about this murder. This is honestly the cra- one of the craziest cases I've ever read. And I know I say that a lot, but holy cow, this case is absolutely insane. I cannot believe, I could not believe what I was reading and like the, the um, documentaries I was watching too. I was like, uh, oh my gosh, this is crazy. Crazy. Like I've never heard of anything like it. This is insane. But anyway, if you guys don't already grab yourselves a drink because this vine will definitely rope you in. All right. So for today's case, we will be traveling all the way to Australia. If you're already there, then get ready because we're coming for you. The destination is set in New South Wales, Australia. It was September 19th of 1992 when two runners were orienteering, which from my understanding is a competitive sport in which participants find their way to various checkpoints across rough country with the aid of a map and a compass, and the winner is the one with the lowest elapsed time. They discovered a decaying corpse in the Belangolo State Forest in New South Wales. This body, ironically enough, was found at a part of the forest called Executioner's Drop. These two runners notified the police and the next day, while they were investigating, police found another body. The second body was only 30 meters, which is 98 feet, from the other body. This of course made national headlines and people started to speculate who these two people could be because there were a few missing people in this area around this time. The bodies were later on revealed to be two British backpackers. One was Caroline Clark, who was 21 years old at the time, and the other was Joanne Walters, who was 22. 
Joanne was actually a nanny in Sydney when she met Carolyn Clark in a backpacker's hostel. The two stuck together and found jobs so they could prolong their stay in Australia. However, when they both left Sydney for Melbourne in April 1992, they were never to be seen or heard from again. Through an autopsy report, it was found that Caroline had been shot 10 times in the head and Joanne had been stabbed 14 times. She had been stabbed four times in the chest, once in the neck, and nine times in the back. The stab wounds to her spine would have paralyzed her. The police believe Carolyn had been used as target practice. There were groups of wounds on the back of her head and on either side. Despite a thorough search of the forest over the following five days, no further evidence or bodies were found by the police. Investigators ruled out the possibility of further discoveries within the Belanglo State Forest. They found a makeshift campsite near the bodies. They found cigarette butts and they found bullet casings belonging to a 22 caliber rifle. They used the bullets that were found in Carolyn's skull to match them with the ones found at the campsite. From these, they were able to identify the weapon that was used and that was a Ruger 22 caliber rifle. This piece of evidence wasn't that helpful because there were over 55,000 registered Ruger rifles in Australia at this time. The police started to wonder what kind of person they were dealing with. This person might be a trained, skilled hunter. They even knew exactly where to stab their victims to paralyze them. Joanne's parents hadn't heard from her in over a month at this point, which was extremely unusual for Joanne. She would usually find a way to contact her parents. So her parents decided to head to Australia to look for her. When the news broke out about what happened, Joanne's parents wanted justice for Joanne and Carolyn, so they made a public appeal for information in front of the media. Dr. Rod Milton, who is a forensic psychiatrist, put together a profile of the killer to help and assist in the case. He suspected the killer was likely to be a male in his 30s who had a history of aggression and a history of hunting and handling guns. He suspected the killer to be familiar with the Belanglo terrain since it was a pretty big park and it's apparently not that easy to navigate. He also believes the killer liked the idea of inflicting pain on others. With the differences on how the two girls had been murdered, Milton was beginning to think they were looking for two murderers, not just one. Let's fast forward some time. It's been now more than a year since they have found the two bodies and they have not found another one since. Until in October 1993, a local man by the name Bruce Pryor discovered a human skull and a femur in a particularly remote section of the forest. Now, Bruce Pryor lived nearby Belanglo and would often go there to collect firewood. The story may have disappeared from headlines over the past year, but Bruce couldn't let go of this case. So he decided to conduct an investigation of his own. He was sure that the answers were in the Belanglo State Forest. Bruce searched thousands of square meters in the forest and going there every week for nine months. The skull that Bruce found, he wrapped it up and took it to the police station. Little did he know, only 22 meters away was another body. Once the news broke about more bodies being discovered in the forest, hundreds of officers and journalists went to Belanglo. This story was back in the headlines. Bruce returned with police to the scene and two more bodies were quickly discovered and identified as Deborah Everest and James Gibson. Deborah and James didn't know each other long before their lives were ripped from them. They both grew up in Melbourne, and in the summer of 89, they had been in Sydney during their vacations, and they planned to hitch to a festival. James's mother was worried about them hitchhiking, but he reassured her that they would be safe because they were traveling together. 
They'd, at this point, they have been missing for four years. James Gibson's skeleton showed eight stab wounds. A large knife had cut through his upper spine, causing paralysis, and stab wounds to his back and chest would have punctured his heart and lungs. Deborah Everest had been savagely beaten. Her skull fractured in two places, her jaw was broken, and there were knife marks on her forehead. She had been stabbed once in the back. Her tights had been used to tie her up. The presence of Gibson's body in Blanglo was a puzzle to investigators as his backpack and camera had previously been discovered by the side of the road at Galston George in the northern Sydney suburbs over 120 kilometers, which is about 75 miles to the north. The bodies were only 600 meters from where Joanne and Carolyn were found. Instead of a pat on the back, Bruce quickly found himself as a suspect in this case, which he deemed was really, really hard to deal with. The police received an unexpected tip from a man named Alex Milan. The tip was that him and a friend saw two girls being abducted. They said they were in the Belangelo forest and they had seen a used car roll by with two girls in the backseat who were tied up. The police thought this was weird, so they checked the story and followed it through. They were just unsure as to why these men came forward all of a sudden. They also thought it was a little odd that these people were saying they saw people who they think were abducted, but they never reported the story until months later. The statement didn't ring true, but it sure did raise a lot of suspicions on Alex Milad. During the investigation on Alex Milad, the first red flag was the size of his family. There were 14 siblings and Alex was the oldest of 10 brothers. The family grew up in a small house on land right outside of Sydney only 100 kilometers from Belanglo Forest. Interestingly enough, most of the boys had been in and out of juvenile detentions. And on the 1st of November, 1993, a skull was found in a clearing in the forest by police sergeant Jeff Tritcher. The skull was later on identified as that of Simone Schmidl from Regensburg, Germany. She was last seen hitchhiking on January 20th, 1991. She had hitchhiked to Melbourne before, so she thought it was going to be safe. Unlike the others, Simone was alone. The attacker drove her for half an hour into the forest, so even Simone would have known there was no escape for her. Clothing found at the scene was not Schmidl's, but matched that of another missing backpacker, Anya Hobsheed. Simone's skeleton showed eight stab wounds, and there may have been many more. Two had severed her spine and others had punctured her heart and lungs. The bodies of Anya and her boyfriend Gabar Nubar were found on November 3, 1993 in shallow graves 50 meters, which is about 160 feet apart. Anya had been decapitated, but despite an extensive search, her head was never found. Gabar had been shot in the head six times. Three bullets entered at the base of the head and three more from the left side. The news of more bodies being recovered circulated the world. People wanted answers, and the serial killer had earned a name, the Backpacker Killer. The victims were from three countries, so the police were hoping the media coverage would give them a break in the story. They were hoping there would be people who may have possibly escaped this monster, which is why they were paying so much attention to the media coverage. Over 17,000 kilometers from Sydney, a man named Paul Onions read about the story. All the way from the UK, he alerted the Sydney police with a tip. Paul had been backpacking in Australia several years before, 
and while out hiking had accepted a ride south out of Sydney from a man known only as Bill on January 25, 1990. Bill pulled out some ropes and attempted to tie Paul by the hands and then pulled a gun on him, at which point he managed to escape the vehicle while Bill shot at him. Paul flagged down Joanne Berry, who was a passing motorist, and reported the assault to local police. Paul's statement was backed up by Barry, who also contacted the investigation team, along with the girlfriend of a man who worked with Ivan Milat, who thought he should be questioned over this case. This statement could have been groundbreaking, but unfortunately, it was lost in hundreds of statements they were getting. With the last two bodies found, police decided to use an anthropologist to help find the killer. It appeared that Gabar had been killed the same way Caroline was, as shooting practice. He had the same marks on his skull. This led police to believe there most likely was two killers involved, one with rage doing the stabbing and decapitation, and one watching and doing shooting practice. Police had to next figure out if it was the same gun that was used. Ballistics experts ran into a problem while examining the bullets. Gabar's rotting brain tissue affected the surface of the bullets and that destroyed all of the marks that they were looking for. All they were able to figure out for sure was that it was a 22 caliber rifle used, but they don't know what kind. 47 cartridge cases for the bullets were found near Gabar's body. Examining these was vital to the investigation. Once a bullet is fired, it leaves the cartridge case. The cartridge case will leave the gun, but not without getting unscathed. It usually leaves similar marks from the gun that it leaves on the bullet. These ones were analyzed with the ones found near Caroline's body, and it turns out they were fired from the exact same weapon. They were now closer to finding out who this killer was linking the two crimes together. Now the police had to test all 55,000 Ruger 22s in Australia. The ballistics expert began his testing, and the benefits of his testing is he would be able to identify the bullet marks from this weapon very easily, but there was a problem. This could take months to figure out, and there could be another victim within this time. They needed to speed up the investigation. This would render to be a challenge with swamped with all of the evidence they had. Underneath all this evidence, they came across Paul's statement once again. Another challenge was narrowing down the suspect list that had 2,000 names. The profiler had to figure out who this suspect would be. The force gave them even more clues. Dr. Bastian, who grew up in Georgia in the United States, he was familiar with the type of foresty area. Back home in Georgia, it was often that people would go out to the forest and set up watermelons and have target practice. But this activity was mostly done as a family, so he began to wonder if they were looking for two brothers. Dr. Milton agreed with Dr. Brashton on this. They started to piece together that this family were hunters and they might have grown up far away from other people. This reminded police of a family they had investigated earlier due to a tip, the Malats. The Malat family was known to have firearms and some of the brothers even went shooting together, and one of the boys had criminal convictions. Police now had to figure out which Malat brother was it. They took a closer look at each of their backgrounds. Ivan Malat had been convicted of theft and faced an armed robbery charge. He lived in Eagle Vale, which was a suburb southwest of Sydney. Ivan Malat had a steady job for 16 years as a road worker. The neighbors saw him always doing yard work or washing his car, and he was described to be a very kind man and if anybody ever needed anything, Ivan was your guy. The police discovered Ivan owned guns and he had a powerful four-wheel drive. He had sporadic relationships, including one of his brother's wife. 
His ex-wife told the police that he wasn't as pleasant of a person as the neighbors thought he was. They found out Ivan was a very controlling person. Ivan seemed to fit the profile. They knew that this was their guy. They just had to figure out how to catch him. Detective Gordon tracked down Ivan's four-wheel drive, and it turns out Ivan had sold it. However, the new owner actually found a bullet underneath the front seat. The bullet turned out to be the same type of bullet used in the murders of Caroline and Gabor. The police next had to check the alibis of all the brothers on the day the backpackers went missing. Ivan was the only one who was unaccounted for on the day of each of the murders. Buried in paperwork, they found a 23-year-old charge against Ivan that instantly made him the prime suspect. The charge against him was on abducting two women and raping them. Ivan's defense argued that it was consensual, so Ivan was never convicted. But how it happened seemed oddly familiar to the police. The girls had been picked up via hitchhiking and were taking off the highway onto a dirt track. The police had to check out all the evidence again, and they went back to Alex Milat and his wife to check his statement once again. The police talked to Alex and his wife, and nothing really stood out to them until they were about to leave. Alex's wife said, oh, by the way, Ivan gave us this backpack. The backpack belonged to none other than Simone. No one really knew why Alex told the police this, but they were starting to wonder if this was Alex's, Alex and his wife's way of indirectly saying, we think Ivan did this. Going back to Paul's statement, nearly five months later, he described everything that fit their suspect's profile. They brought Paul to Australia and he positively identified Ivan as the attacker. Now the police had to figure out if Ivan acted alone on this crime. At 6.30 a.m. on the 22nd of May in 1994, armed police surrounded the home of Ivan Milat. They were to arrest him on the attack of Paul Onions and were hoping to find more evidence that he was the backpacker killer. They found evidence the moment they opened the front door to his house. They found Simone's tent, Deborah's sleeping bag, and more camping equipment in the garage. They found firearms, ammunition, and a hunting sword. Hidden in the wall cavity was a plastic bag with a breech bolt, a trigger assembly, and an aftermarket magazine for a Ruger 10-22 rifle. The breech bolt could be crucial to figuring out if this was part of the murder weapon for Caroline and Gabar. The breech bolt is responsible for making the marks on the bullets. The ballistics expert was now able to compare the markings on the test cartridges, and they were in fact a match. And in July 1996, Ivan Malat was convicted of the murders of all seven backpackers. Police believe he killed more, but they don't have any evidence telling them so. They concluded that all these murders took place when Ivan was in a stable relationship. And by stable, I mean stable for him, which meant when he was in control. So the final mystery of this case is, did Ivan Malat act alone? Or was there a second attacker working with him? What do you guys think of this case? Are you familiar with this case? Did you know about this case before today's episode? I'm honestly so glad Sarah um, requested this case because I honestly would have never known. And a lot of the requests I've been getting lately are from cases I have never, never even heard of, which is why I want you guys to request cases because it's like, it's it's so it's kind of hard finding a, you know, a, a good case to report on, not even report on, but to like have an episode on. Some cases are like, eh, that's kind of boring. You know, there's nothing really much to the case. It's not like as for lack of better word, juicy, um, as others in this case, definitely, definitely. Wow. <laughs> there was a lot to it. And my 
mind was blown while I was researching this case and I was watching these documentaries. And there's even a movie inspired on this case called Wolf Creek. Um, this is also like referred to as the Wolf, the Wolf Creek murders, um, as well as the backpacker killer. Um, it's honestly, I, what do you guys think of this case? Do you guys think Ivan acted alone? I kind of think now, I don't know if I'm shooting myself in the foot here, but I kind of think that Alex and Ivan were the two that did it. Although they didn't have any evidence against Alex, I believe I'm kind of starting to wonder because why would Alex come forward with this story? Why was he, was the, the friend that he was with in Blanglo State Park, was that Ivan? And, you know, he had to... Maybe him and Ivan got into a fight and he was like, you know what? You're going down for this murder. Like you're, you're done. You're going down. So Ivan had to, or not Ivan, Alex had to suggest to the police that Ivan was the one doing it. And you know how those guilty oftentimes launch themselves into the investigation and, you know, are very cooperative because they have to, you know, not make, make sure that police do not suspect them and make sure that, you know, they derail the police whenever they can. So is it another instance of that? And, um, you know, did Ivan really give them that backpack or did Alex take it? You know, you, it's just one of those things. It's like, Hmm, I don't know. Um, I definitely think it was not just one person just going by like how different these were. I mean, unless it was kind of like his, um, again, for lack of a better word, fad at the time of his fantasies. And that's how he murdered the people at the, the time. It just doesn't make sense because two were used as shooting practice, but one was decapitated, which was a very, very different MO than all the other ones. And um, a few of them were stabbed and they all seem to have a consistent stab wound to their spine that would paralyze them. So uh, makes sense if he stabbed them, you know, the ones that he used as shooting practice. Um, he stabbed them in the spine so they couldn't get up and run away um, while, you know, he shot and killed them. This is definitely a very horrific, horrific, gruesome case. Like, honestly, this is wild and kind of really disturbing to think about. I cannot imagine what these victims went through. And honestly, like the deepest remorse goes out to, I mean, honestly, to their families. I can't imagine losing a family member and let alone losing them to something so disgusting and horrifying. And oh my gosh, I, I just think that those guilty of this crime, um, which is Ivan and whoever the other one may be, if there really even is another one, I just kind of think there is. I'm not saying that as a fact. I hope they get what they deserve because this is honestly disgusting. And oh my goodness, so disgusting. Um, But anyway, thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode. If you could take a few moments and head over to my Instagram at the Crime Bind Podcast and Tell me what you guys think about this case and if you guys think there's another person or um, if Ivan act alone, acted alone, tell me your theories on this case. I really am interested. Um, also, I don't know if I've already said this. I'm pretty sure I did, but give us a follow over there. I'm very active. I do occasionally, not occasionally, mostly I post memes to kind of lighten up um, this dark side of the internet. And also, if you could take a few moments and please rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you are listening to, it really helps boost the ratings up for the show. And it helps me and keeps me being able to do and continue this further. Thank you guys so much again for listening. And I will talk to you guys in my next podcast episode.